0: I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America, chartered by Congress, to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And in this episode, we discuss one of the most hotly contested and important constitutional questions of our time, namely, Does the First Amendment protect hate speech and should it be construed to protect hate speech? The First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. In the 1960s, the court interpreted that to mean that speech can only be banned if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. But as our campuses and our chat rooms roil with discussions about the proper scope of free speech, there are important arguments that that. First Amendment understanding should be rethought. And joining us to discuss this crucial question are two of America's leading scholars of the First Amendment and contributors to this crucial debate. Shannon Gilreath is Professor of Law and Professor of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Wake Forest University Law School. His books include Sexual Politics, The Gay Person in America Today, and The End of Straight Supremacy, Realizing Gay Liberation. Keith Whittington is Wilson Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton and author of the upcoming book, Why Free Speech is Central to the Mission of a University. Shannon, Keith, thank you so much for joining.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Keith, let's jump right in. I mentioned the First Amendment holding. Uh, in the Brandenburg case from 1969, that free speech can only be restricted in America if it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. As are we the people listeners know, that test uh, draws on Justice Brandeis's concurring opinion in the Whitney case. Can you tell us as uh, succinctly and meaningfully as possible where that First Amendment test came from and, and why the Supreme Court has held that it's rooted in the First Amendment?
1: Yeah, so it takes a long time for the court to get to that point. Um, through, until the early 20th century, the court relied on what um, is generally known as the bad tendency test um, and thinking about uh, what speech can be suppressed uh, by the government. And so the thrust of how the court um, in the 19th century and early 20th century thought about um, free speech was you had a right to free speech as long as it didn't cause harm to other people um, and the way to think about um, uh, when speech um, caused harm uh, was if the court thought that it had um, a bad tendency or a tendency to ultimately cause harm. So this is a very loose standard. As a consequence, it was relatively easy for state and federal governments to um, suppress lots of speech um, on the grounds that it was uh, dangerous. Um, that starts becoming increasingly controversial um, uh, in the early 20th century and particularly surrounding World War One, with lots of... Um, Dissenters being arrested, the federal government cracking down, the states cracking down on dissent against World War I. Um, And um, Oliver Wendell Holmes, um, and then followed by Justice Brandeis, um, uh, were increasingly vocal that we needed to move to a a stricter test that would um, uh, protect uh, more dissenters from uh, uh, being suppressed by the government in this way. Um, Initially, they moved to what uh, became known as the Clear and Present Danger Test. Um, So we should only suppress speech if it poses a clear and present danger uh, rather than simply a bad tendency um, toward uh, danger. Um, That um, had some benefits. Um, It allowed for more uh, dissent to be expressed without the government intervening. Um, But pretty quickly, um, it also became apparent that um, judges could use that test to also um, uphold um, suppression of a lot of dissenters, in particular um, a lot of members of the Communist Party, um, uh, were prosecuted under that test and their convictions were repelled um, under that test. Um, and so by uh, uh, the late 60s in Brandenburg, the court moves to what it thinks is an even stricter test, uh, which is the threat of imminent violence um, test. And so try to get away from uh, what had become uh, fairly loose language about a clear and present danger to what the court wanted to say was um Uh, even tighter language um, about there has to be an imminent threat to violence before um, the police and government can become involved.
0: Thank you very much for that succinct and helpful history. Shannon, as Keith tells it, the evolution from the bad tendency test to the uh, imminent lawless action test was a triumph for free speech that prevented dissenters from being thrown in jail for their opposition to government. Do you agree or do you have a different reading of that history?
2: Uh, No, I think that's... Absolutely correct, in so far as it goes, so you know my position about speech that creates or perpetuates inequality is not, in my view, at least out of sync with that history. I mean, I think it's true that the Supreme Court's precedent that deals with imminent lawless action is more protective of dissenting viewpoints, particularly dissenting political viewpoints, than the court had been, historically speaking. But I think, you know, that doesn't uh, necessarily—I think that gets us only to a point in the conversation. And then the question beyond that is, um, but what about the rest? You know, what about incidents that aren't covered by that particular paradigm of of speech jurisprudence, which I think really is more the heart of the hate speech, for lack of a better term, controversy?
0: Um, That's great. So maybe at this point it's time for me to ask— you to tell our listeners how you think uh, the First Amendment should be construed to allow the restriction of hate speech that threatens equality.
2: Yeah, so the first thing I would say is I don't particularly care for or or use in my own work the terminology hate speech, because I think that it is somewhat misleading in terms of what I think actually uh, we should be focusing on which I prefer to call anti-equality speech or anti-identity speech, because my position is that the First Amendment always has to be filtered through the lens of the 14th Amendment's superseding commitment to equality, so that the government actually does have an obligation to um, regulate speech that erodes the equal equality of targeted groups. And while we can focus on the Brandenburg line of cases and the evolution of that particular paradigm, I think it's perhaps a little misleading for listeners to suggest that that's uh, sort of the only exception, right? The, the only speech that is accepted from the spe- speech paradigm is speech that might create imminent law of faction. The truth is, First Amendment jurisprudence is shot full of holes. Uh, obscenity law, um, sexual harassment... And the list goes on. Uh, contract law, for example, is even, you know, I mean, I can't make a contract with you and then renege on it and say, oh, well, I was just exercising my right to free speech. So there are all sorts of ways in which speech uh, might convey a point of view or an idea, and yet we regulate it. So I think, think the question with speech that is antithetical to equality is simply, are we willing to, reg- to, to recognize another exception to the paradigm? And if not,
0: why not? Wonderful. Thank you for for that. So, Keith, uh, in his article, uh, Anti-Identity Speech, Shannon argues, as he's just signaled here, that he would allow for the reasonable regulation of speech that has as its aim or effect the subordination and second-class status of historically disenfranchised minorities. In such discrete instances, speech is analyzed and regulated on the basis of harm, not viewpoint the speech is restricted for what it does, eroding equality, not for what it says. Uh, for the court to embrace that view obviously would recall uh, re- require revisiting the Brandenburg standard, if not amending its understanding of the First Amendment. Uh, what do you think of Shannon's uh, proposed uh, standard?
1: So I think that's really interesting and, and actually quite useful as a way of thinking about um, what's at stake here. Um, and... and Uh, I'm with him in thinking that um, uh, hate speech is a very murky category. People use it in all kinds of ways, and so um, focusing our attention um, on anti-equality speech um, is at least clearer Um, and and may actually focus our attention on on what we care about more, although I'd be curious if it winds up leaving some things out that people also want to uh, try to get at when they talk about um, hate speech. it, it does, though, um, and, and he's absolutely right, of course, that, that the court has carved out all kinds of exceptions to um, what we might think of as a general free speech regime. And so the court is certainly not absolutist about free speech in which there's only uh, this one little exception of, of threats and violence. Um, but what the court has done over the course of the 20th century is uh, try to shift us away from the kind of legal regime that exists in the 19th century in which um Uh, A a wide set of things were um, easily suppressed by the government on the notion that um, not only were they dangerous in the sense they caused violence, but they were dangerous to society and caused harms more generally, or what in in, um, uh, 19th and 18th century language would have been uh, people exercising license Mm -hmm. instead of liberty, Um, so they're abusing their their right to free speech. and, and part of what the court wanted to do in the 20th century is say, no, no, we ought to reverse that assumption. And instead, our assumption ought to be um, that you're free to speak um, in most circumstances and it's only narrow exceptions that we want um, to carve out. Um, and and so then that's sort of a case-by-case justification for each one of those. And it's an interesting approach to want to say, uh, well, in this inequality context, here's another one of these exceptions and we ought to think of it like we think of obscenity um, or fraud. Um, or other kinds of things that are so valueless, um, are dangerous, um, are harmful, um, that we shouldn't no longer protect it anymore.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for that. Uh, Shannon, let's um, talk about some specific applications of your theory. In your article, Anti-Identity Speech, you talk about the Ninth Circuit's decision in Harper versus Poway Unified School District, which upheld a high school's banning of a student's T-shirt with a degrading message about gays and lesbians. Judge Reinhardt held that under cases allowing for the regulation of speech in public schools, uh, public school students who may be injured by verbal assaults on the basis of core identifying characteristics such as race, religion, or sexual orientation have a right to be free from such attacks while on school campuses. Judge Kaczynski dissented vigorously, uh, concluding the fundamental problem with the majority's approach is that it has no anchor anywhere in the record or in law. Tell us more about Harper, how that would apply uh with your theory and and how other kind of uh speech that degrades uh, minorities uh, on campus could be restricted
2: yeah so i mean I think harper uh, is an easier case so so far as that is I guess a relative uh, assessment, but it's easier, I think, because you are dealing with children in a controlled environment uh from which they cannot escape effectively, from which they are not permitted to leave. Truancy laws and all sorts of things compel them to be there. And there's also... The the data is legion at this point um, that being subjected to these sorts of anti-gay propaganda campaigns in schools does lead to all sorts of material consequences, lower grade point averages, uh, missing school more frequently, higher rates of addiction, suicidality, all sorts of of things like that. Uh, Not to mention, of course, the reality that generally, when it goes unchecked, this kind of speech doesn't just stay speech. It becomes a physical manifestation in the real world in, in the form of battery and attack. So because all that data exists, I think it was easier for the court in the Harper case to say this, even consistent with the Tinker standard, creates a, a substantial disruption to the school environment. Um, and I think that's true insofar as it goes. The only thing that uh, where I would part company with the Harper court is I, I don't think that that decision adequately addresses the question of discrimination, which is what I've been trying to get at in my work about interpreting the First Amendment through the 14th Amendment. I'm I'm interested in having a general conversation about the way the 14th Amendment does, in fact, affect how we think of the First Amendment. And up to this point, it seems both courts and most commentators sort of uh, treat this topic as if speech and the First Amendment exist in a vacuum. And rarely, right, do we say, okay, there are two competing constitutional values and how do we make sure that those two competing values are in sync with one another in any given decision. And although I agree with the outcome in the Poway uh, decision, I don't necessarily think that that uh, discussion is happening in the opinion. And I'd like to see it happen more frequently. The question then becomes, of course, if we shift to a 14th Amendment analysis of these kinds of questions in schools, and if we did, I think the outcome would be very much like that in Harper. Do we carry that beyond this kind of setting into the general public space, which I think is is far more controversial than limiting it to K-12 school environments? Uh,
0: Well, well set up. Uh, And so, Keith, let me ask you, do you agree, first of all, uh, with the majority are with Judge Kaczynski's dissent that speech that degrades minorities in high schools uh, can be degraded because of the special characteristics of high schools. And then more broadly, what do you think of the application of this anti-subordination argument to banning hate speech, uh, say, on campuses more generally?
1: Yeah, I think that the uh, context of... Um Uh, schools and uh, school children is certainly different than the context of adults in in a broader context, including, for example, college campuses, um, where uh, these kind of debates are taking place. But certainly we think about um, uh, the larger um, environment in which we might want to regulate um, uh, speech. Um, And there are, despite the fact that we have, um, over the last few decades, uh, shifted to wanting to give a lot more Uh, Credence to um, free expression rights of uh, children, uh, including in a school context, um, there are still lots of restrictions on that. And and I think it's appropriate to to bear those in mind. Especially though, if we want to carry this outside of a schoolhouse context and try to apply it um, in in other broader contexts, we should recognize, I think, how bold of a departure it is um, from some of the conceptual foundations that um, Oliver Holmes and others were using to uh, develop the kind of free speech regime that we have now in the first place. Um, The emphasis on saying we should interpret the First Amendment through the Fourteenth Amendment um, is intriguing in part because it emphasizes the idea um, that the Constitution is fundamentally committed to equality, um, and everything else, including free speech rights, um, ought to be subordinated to and work around uh, that central commitment. Holmes, on the other hand, um, uh, took the view in a range of cases um, that the Constitution is not fundamentally committed to much of anything um, except for a democratic process for making decisions. Um, and to that degree, then, um, he was willing to give free play to all kinds of ideas uh, in the marketplace and allow legislatures to make all kinds of decisions um, uh, and and not— um, And and in his view, then, the Constitution didn't prioritize uh, any particular set of substantive values. And so in this context, for example, Holmes would want to say equality is really important, but the Constitution um, can be changed in that regard. And the the Constitution doesn't restrict the First Amendment uh, ability to talk about those issues um, precisely because at the end of the day, those issues ought to be contestable and are contestable. Um, So it's a bold departure from that tradition to say, no, no. Um, really there are in fact some core values um, that um, uh, take precedence and and we have to affirm those um, instead of saying um, everything's up for grabs um, in the marketplace of ideas uh, and in the democracy more generally.
0: Thanks so much for that. Uh, Shannon, as Keith said, Holmes believed that liberty had to trump every other constitutional value because everything had to be up for grabs in the marketplace of ideas. And Justice Brandeis, uh, slightly more idealistically, uh, believed that uh, emotional injury or dignity should never trump liberty because the decision about which ideas should be admitted into the public square should be made by the reasoned liberation among citizens and not by other bodies. Uh, what's your response to Holmes and Brandeis, and why do you think they were wrong?
2: Well, I don't think that they took account of the whole backdrop of inequality that creates the circumstances in the real world that most concern me. So while the marketplace of ideas and metaphor is a compelling one, it doesn't account for the fact that there are monopolists in the marketplace. So when you have an environment in which people are so degraded and debased and subordinated through propaganda campaigns against them, that they can't compete equally in the market for speech, then we don't have a free speech system. And I think uh, while uh, the theories advanced by Holmes and Brandeis work for people who already have power, they don't really work for the powerless. They don't do much for empowering the people at the bottom to really take part in national political debates. Because if you have been silenced or if you are too afraid to speak uh, because of the social environment, then it is not likely that you're going to be exercising liberty. You see, I don't think liberty can exist uh, with, without uh, a environment of substantive equality, not merely formal equality. So I just don't think that those theories of speech adequately account for the lived lives, the the lived realities of subordinated people. And for that reason, you know, I wouldn't suggest so much that it's a radical departure from the prior case law in the sense that um I you know I want to shut down political discussions and that that sort of thing. I, I certainly don't. Um but what I want to take account of is that not every you know, I mean just to put it bluntly <laughs> I've never heard faggot yelled at me from a moving car and considered that to be an invitation to dialogue or political discussion, right? I mean, there's some types of speech that are used for the purpose of cowing and silencing and subordinating the target. That's the sort of speech that most concerned me, not general political conversations about, uh, you know, more abstract concepts of of, uh, politics. I'm concerned about real people's lives on an everyday basis. And I'm afraid that these more lofty and abstract ideas of what free speech is and how it should operate really don't take account of those realities.
0: Keith, what's your response to Shannon's argument that Holmes and Brandeis failed to account for the lived reality of subordinated minorities? He just gave us a dramatic example of an epithet that's not an invitation to dialogue. And how is his effort to take account of equality consistent with your view that the mission of a university is to produce and disseminate knowledge and free speech is essential to that mission?
1: Right. So um, so I think it's certainly partly right that um, uh, the Holmes and Brandeis don't take adequate account of uh, systems of subordination and what the implications of that are for uh, people's lived experience. It's not the way they were conceptualizing uh, the legal and political and social landscape, and and so it wasn't central to how they thought about um, some of these issues. I think it's not quite right, though, to say that therefore they didn't they didn't think about um, uh, what and, and their and their doctrines didn't have consequences for the powerless. Um, in some ways, I think the um, uh, the history of the court's application and development of free speech doctrine in this regard um, uh, flips that a little bit. That part of what empowered. Uh, Holmes and Brandeis to try to extend legal protections to anarchist and socialist dissenters from World War I, for example, was precisely because they were so powerless, uh, it didn't matter. Um, they weren't actually dangerous. Um, and so they were relatively comfortable um, saying, therefore, we ought to ex- extend free speech protections to them. And that's, I think, central to where the court wanted to go with Brandenburg as well, that in in context, they thought fundamentally, this isn't very dangerous speech. And so what's interesting then, I think, is how clear and present danger winds up uh, being deployed to uphold um, government suppression of speech in the communist cases in the, in the 50s um, was there was a much stronger sense that this is actually dangerous speech. Um, these people might actually get power um, in some important way. And as a consequence, we ought to be more open to the government um, suppressing that. We need to uh, manipulate the doctrine in order to allow that to occur as well. I find in the modern context or uh, relatively recent context uh, to talk about these issues uh, with students, for example, it's useful to think about um, um, speech surrounding um, Islamic terrorism um, and to what degree should that be protected, to what degree um, should the government be able to um, go after it. Uh, Most of that kind of speech doesn't fall within um, uh, the Brandenburg exception. Um, And yet I think there's a very real sense that um, that speech can lead to very dangerous consequences. And so um, it's, it's sometimes easier, for example, for students to, to imagine, well, maybe we really do want to suppress that speech in the same way that people uh, might have reasonably thought in the 40s and 50s we wanted to suppress um, a, a communist speech. Um, because, uh, and it's precisely because those, that speech is perceived as not completely powerless, uh, but instead that speech is, is perceived as uh, potentially quite dangerous, um, but not dangerous in a, in a very imminent way.
0: So Sh- Shannon Keith mentions the notion of uh, speech promoting uh, t- t- terrorism that might fall short of the Brandenburg standard. You recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Blade arguing for title, tighter U.S. controls on the immigrations of Muslims on the ground that Islam is endemically antithetical to the well-being of gay people. The op-ed touched off protests at Wake Forest under uh, organized under the hashtag Ban Shan. (laughs) So tell tell us about that experience and and how it uh, affected your your thinking about about the First Amendment.
2: Uh, Well, it didn't affect my thinking about the First Amendment um, in in the sense that, um, at least in terms of my theory of anti-equality speech, um, because, you know, I wasn't promoting some idea about um, the biological inferiority of of Arabs. I wasn't uh, making a class-based argument against a group of targeted people. I was uh, talking about the dangers of an ideology, a political ideology, that may well uh, have impact on gay people in ways that perhaps some of the uh, political advocacy groups denominated gay weren't thinking all the way through. Um, But that, to me, is speech about political ideology. It is not about the inherent inferiority of a group of people. Um, you know, for example, I don't say anything about restricting, you know, any Arab atheist you can find me that, that might indeed need, truly need, asylum in the United States. I was speaking specifically about religious doctrines that, when put into political practice, may in fact imperil the equality goals of gay and lesbian people. So I see that somewhat outside um, my project, in terms of anti-identity speech, I, I would just like to say, in terms of Keith's assessment of the uh, dissenters' cases, the communist cases, and the bad tendency cases, I think that's absolutely right. In in terms of that power and powerlessness, were not completely absent from the courts' theorizing about speech. I just think they had it backward. I mean, um, it seems to me that if you're have a commitment to anti-subordination, then you don't have a speech system that says, we'll allow people to speak as long as we don't think they're a threat to the government. When we decide they're a threat to the government, we'll allow the government to suppress them. So that's actually the upside-down version of my theory, which is to say, uh, you always consider who's powerful and who's powerless in these speech contest. Well, the government is almost always the powerful player. Um, that's not so clear when you're dealing with individual speech in the public sphere. Um, you know, the, the, I, I think while they considered power, they considered it in the absolutely reverse context of the way I would consider it in in an anti-identity speech context.
0: Thanks so much for that. Um, Keith, what do you make of Shannon's distinction between uh, speech that uh, criticizes uh, an ideology? And a speech that uh, criticizes uh, a religious minority. Interestingly, it's the same line that Facebook and Google draw in their hate speech policies. They allow the criticism of religious leaders but not of people on the basis of religion. Uh, Is that uh, persuasive in your uh, understanding of the First Amendment? And what do you think the consequences of adopting it might be?
1: Well, I worry very much about um, how slippery the boundary is between uh, between those two. I think the um, um, which takes us back to, to um, Shannon's earlier point as well about um, somebody um, screaming profanities from a, from a truck that drives by is not an invitation to, to debate. And I, I take that point. And I think that's very much true, and and certainly um, uh, it, it certainly is the case in the university environment. Um, but but I think it's also true of society more generally. Um, that that what we want to try to make space for in a free speech regime um, is for people to engage seriously uh, with competing ideas um, and hear what those competing ideas are and to um, uh, be able to examine them. And um, uh, people simply yelling profanities at one another um, hardly advances that um, and, and is not of, of very great concern from the perspective of what the what we're trying to uh, protect and advance. Um, I think the concern though is uh, once you empower, uh, whether it's government officials or campus administrators in the university context, um, or even, you know, uh, school administrators in in the public school, secondary school um, context, um, to start um, uh, regulating speech and um, policing, um, what kinds of um, speech are and are not um, acceptable, um, uh, it pretty quickly gets turned um, to a lot of targets that are um, far more expansive than we might um, tend to think were, was was what motivated us to adopt the restrictions in the first place. Um, and in particular, administrators and government officials are often highly motivated to uh, try to suppress speech that they find particularly um, unsettling or unpleasant um, And and often that's not the same kind of speech um, as the people who are advocating uh, these kinds of hate speech uh, doctrines in general uh, would wanna focus on. So if the Trump administration, for example, uh, was able to decide uh, which speech ought to be suppressed um, because it was uh, violating um, anti-subordination principles, for example, um, I think it's fairly safe to think that they would come to rather different conclusions about which speech ought to be punished um, than uh, Shannon would. Um, And I think that's just a persistent danger um, of opening these doors. And so we ought to be very cautious about whether or not we really want to open them and go through them.
0: Sh- Shannon, uh, a response to Keith's point that uh, the Holmes and Brandeis tradition doesn't trust government officials to decide what kind of speech should be heard or subordinates or is dangerous, and that it would be bad to put that in the hands of government officials. And then I, w- I want to get down to concrete cases and ask, w- what do you think of the, from a constitutional perspective? of the shout downs at campuses across the country, uh, from Berkeley to other places?
2: Uh, yeah, good questions. Well, so, insofar as the slippery slope argument is concerned, I mean, I think it has been traditionally the, uh, the most useful justification that people on the left have had for doing nothing when it comes to the uh, inequality problems faced by minorities in the country. I share some concern about giving government officials the power to censor speech, which has not exactly been my position. I mean, I'm much more comfortable with juries making those decisions. So uh, when it comes to talking about debating ideas, I never want to get in the way of debating ideas. But I think we have to be careful to say, in a system, a constitutional system that is supposedly not neutral on the question of equality, it isn't as if there is no basis for distinguishing between speech that promotes equality and speech that advocates the inequality of a class. And I would be willing to, particularly when there is lots of data suggesting links between these kinds of hate propaganda campaigns and concrete injuries, right? I'm not talking about offense. That has never been my problem. I'm offended by all kinds of things. Um, But I I am not talking about being offended. I'm talking about a legitimate injury to a right, the right to equality, that the Constitution says I and uh, all others are guaranteed. So I think it's true that too many campus administrators, and of course to the extent that we're talking about private schools, we really aren't talking about the 14th Amendment anyway, but I do think it's true that a lot of bureaucrats um, are more concerned about hurt feelings than they are anything else and keeping, uh, you know, protests down and so forth. I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned about a system of speech that makes it possible for relatively powerless groups of people to be subordinated by the speech campaigns of powerful people. And I would be willing to put it into the hands of a jury to make those uh, make those calls. I wouldn't want it to be in the hands of some bureaucrat in the Trump administration, which is not anything I've ever advocated. But I have advocated that if we had a law that restricted certain kinds of anti-identity speech, carefully defined in, in the work that I've produced, I'd be willing to allow juries to make those difficult calls in the same way that we allow juries to make lots of difficult calls. And it does seem to me that if, you know, what I have on my side are the body's piling up, Um, and what's on the other side is the great big question mark that is the slippery slope. It seems to me that opponents of an anti-equality conceptualization of free speech ought to bear the burden of proving that what I say won't work, rather than it being the other way around. But I really don't think that we have had in the courts, or frankly in the academic commentary, very much, an honest, conversation about equality as it bears on the First Amendment. So, I mean, I'm glad that we're having it today. As to the question of campus protest, which I think is not exactly related to my anti-equality speech theory, um, you know, I absolutely oppose the notion of heckling down at the speaker. Um, And it seems to me particularly in the university campus environment where it's absolutely imperative that we have a free exchange of political ideas. Students, faculty members, staff members cannot be allowed to silence unpopular opinions by violent action. And uh, to the extent that universities are attempting now to write campus codes that are cracking down on that sort of behavior, is certainly no a project I would get in the way of.
0: Many thanks for that. Uh, So, Keith, you've heard Shannon say he's opposed to shout-downs and doesn't believe that government officials or even university bureaucrats should be in charge of deciding what kind of speech subordinates, but it perhaps should be left in the hands of juries and other enforcement bodies. What do you think of that, and and how might it work on university campuses?
1: Well, I'm happy with that to some degree. Um, um, I'm I, I prefer juries, I think, to bureaucrats, um, although I'm not completely confident in juries either. So um, uh, that would still leave me a little nervous about um, what the what the consequences uh, of that might be. And certainly, in a campus, um, in a campus environment and the kinds of policies we might adopt on campuses, ultimately, it wouldn't be questions of juries. It'd be questions of uh, college administrators making decisions about um, who gets uh, disciplined or suppressed. Um, And who doesn't? And we, in fact, have a long track record of knowing how college administrators uh, make those decisions. so it's not, I think, a big question mark about what a slippery slope might look like. Instead, we mostly can just look at the last 150 years of what college administrators do and and what they have always done is, in fact, um, suppress speech that they find um, uh, potentially leading to bad publicity that uh, might offend alumni or wealthy donors um, uh, might offend um, uh, their own personal sensibilities, might offend uh, state legislators. Um, and so once you empower them to start making those decisions, um, uh, they, they, uh, they are willing to use it. Uh, they are willing to use it pretty aggressively and um, probably use it in ways that are uh, not very in keeping with the anti-subordination uh, goals, um, but in, in some ways actually often cut against those goals uh, in various ways. I do think it's so terribly important. And, and, um, I don't want to suggest in any way that, 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 um, I would want to downplay that it's, it's terribly important to defend, um, uh, people's, uh, uh, rights as, as, uh, are given to them under the 14th amendment. And so we, we certainly want, um, government to aggressively intervene to defend people from, um, actions that cause concrete injuries that ensure that they um, get equal protection um, under, uh, under the laws. Um, what I'm more skeptical about, though, is um, uh, uh, generating from the 14th Amendment a more general um, uh, commitment to a, a broad value of equality as such, um, and, and therefore let that sort of freewheeling principle Uh, become a way of of restricting um, uh, free speech. And I think once we've done that, then it it does encourage, um, although I'm very glad that that Shannon uh, would not want to encourage um, uh, the kinds of things we've seen in Berkeley and elsewhere, um, but it does encourage people to to start making those kinds of arguments, that if we're fundamentally committed to equality um, and speech ought to be restricted um, so as to not subvert that value, that value, and, and undermine um, that that very important commitment, um, then uh, likewise, why should we allow people like Ann Coulter to come to campus and make arguments that, in the view of some, um, are in fact subversive of that value and could lead um, uh, either in the short run or in the long run um, to very damaging uh, policies and social actions um, that undermine undermine those those principles? And so people start. From a very similar starting point, um, but but certainly uh, take it um, in uh, the direction of uh, therefore we shouldn't allow certain speakers to make certain kinds of arguments, um, and uh, precisely because they they undermine our fundamental commitment to equality.
0: Shannon Keith says that once you construe the First Amendment to allow the restriction of speech that subordinate minorities. Then, people from university bureaucrats to government officials would be free to suppress all sorts of speech in its name. Uh, are you concerned about that, and what do you think of the other um pressures against speech on campus such as disinvitations of speakers whose uh, speak speech is said to uh, offend or to subordinate?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, um, as to the former question. And um, of course, I think it's always a concern that whatever policy one sets can be abused and can be manipulated and uh, implemented in ways that um, perhaps are antithetical to its purpose. Um, but I think that can be said about sexual harassment law, about Title VII, about Title IX. Um, and that doesn't stop me from believing that in a material way, we are better off because we have those policies. Do campuses sometimes make missteps with Title IX? Absolutely. Of course they do. Um, But I don't think that that really, uh, although, of course, it's the argument of some people, it certainly wouldn't, in my view, be the uh, argument of reasonable people, that we should just jettison the whole system then and do nothing about sexual harassment. I'm making the same type of argument about speech that is analogous to sexual harassment. It has a point of view, it conveys an idea, and nevertheless, it cannot say what it says without also doing what it does. Um, in those sort of defined categories of speech, it seems to me that we're better off with a system that tries to address them head-on, as, by the way, um, do do most of our um, you know Western industrialized counterparts, virtually every country. Um, in the West has some uh, version of an anti-hate speech law, for lack of better terminology, and we don't think of those places as free speech despotisms. So I think, um, you know, the idea that it just can't work here um, is is not in any way to me sufficiently proved. Um, So what I would advocate is a careful implementation of a system that takes account of equality, um Understanding that there'll be hiccups along the way that we'll have to deal with in the most intelligent and reasonable way that we can, um, but I, I don't I haven't heard anything that makes me say well, doing nothing is a better option um, And as to the question of of rescinding the invitations of people, um I mean I absolutely think it's in in, in terms of the people that college administrators themselves choose to invite to campus. I um, absolutely, absolutely think that is an exercise of their discretion, and that in the deliberation about who those speakers should be, um, there should some account should be taken as to whether those people espouse philosophies that um, are are based on the subordination of a targeted, uh, historically marginalized group of people. Um, What's happening at Berkeley and other places, though, seems to be somewhat different from that, and that is that student groups themselves are making invitations to people, and those invitations are being rescinded by a higher authority, as it were, the university's administration. And I think that's a slightly different situation in which um, it seems to me that the university would be much better off in... issuing its own statement, if it wishes, that it finds the ideas of the invited speaker repugnant and antithetical to the mission of the university, fine. I think the university administration is also entitled to speech. Um, But I I think it's a more difficult case when the power of the university itself is brought to bear on a student group, uh, so as to say, your version of truth may not be heard. And um, I think that there are bases for distinguishing those kinds of calls and that a system in which we take account of anti-identity, anti-equality speech doesn't necessarily mean that every offensive thing or offensive speaker would in some way be regulated. Because again, my project has never been about what is offensive, and of course that is the overriding conversation on most university campuses, will somebody be offended? I'm much more interested in, can we make a substantive case that their actual equality interests, their interest in being equal citizens, will be somehow offended? And it seems to me that there are bases for making those distinctions that aren't as abstract as opponents of that position would um, have us believe.
0: Many thanks for that. Well, Keith, you've heard Shannon's argument Um, And engaged it. um, If it were adopted, describe to us what kind of speech you think would be restricted on campus, um, how it would be restricted and uh, whether or not you think that's a good idea.
1: Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I'm I'm optimistic that there may be some common ground between us on uh, ways of trying to um, develop restrictions that uh, would be uh, reasonable and appropriate while um, still allowing for robust debates um, um, on campus in the the university context or in society more generally in in other kinds of contexts. Um, And and certainly, I think it's fully appropriate to um, uh, want to restrict um, those who are engaging in uh, harassing behavior or who are um, uh, uh, issuing threats um, uh, and and the like. Um, And the real challenge is um, how do we adequately protect people who are um, espousing ideas that um, I think we're right to say this is not just a, the concern, should not just be um, offensive ideas um, or, or ideas that we might um, find um, unfortunate, um, but ideas that we think, in fact, are um, desperately wrong and would have really bad consequences if people were to um, embrace them and adopt them. And, and um, but 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 if you take that seriously, an argument that says that. Um, uh, We want to restrict um, uh, anti-subordination, on anti-subordination principles, um, speech that would tend to um, undermine um, our quality values, Um, and that certainly has led many people to say, for example, that uh, many of the kinds of statements that Donald Trump made on the campaign trail, um, or for that matter, some of the statements he's made since uh, assuming office, um, uh, don't meet that standard and ought to be um, excluded from the public sphere. Um, his surrogates, who um, offer arguments on his behalf, um, uh, or have, would similarly be uh, criticized. Um, some of the Ann Coulter's arguments about immigration, for example, would be seen as uh, raising uh, very similar kinds of, of concerns. Um, and, and, and it's on that basis that um, uh, some administrators and certainly plenty of students have taken the view on college campuses that those uh, things ought to be restricted. And moreover, in some other countries, that's been the view. And so um, while certainly they're not um, uh, despotic regimes, um, fortunately, um, it's still the case, though, that, um, for example, um, uh, employees of Facebook who live in countries in which hate speech policies are commonplace, um, argued that um, uh, Donald Trump ought to be um, excluded from Facebook on um, precisely the grounds that he, what he said um, constituted hate speech. And as a consequence, his campaign speeches um, shouldn't be allowed to be presented um, on Facebook, for example. Um, and I think that's the road that we go down uh, once we start doing these things. And I'm just I'm just very skeptical that it's possible to draft a policy, um, let alone implement it, um, that won't encourage us to go down that kind of road.
0: Uh, many thanks for response from you, Shannon. Then we'll have uh, the closing arguments. What do you uh, make of Keith's claim that your uh, First Amendment principle could lead to the restriction of speech by Donald Trump, his surrogates, and Coulter and others? Uh,
2: well, I think that it's true. It, it probably could lead to the restriction of some things that they have said. Um, and naturally, that's the outcome I would want um, to the extent that some things they have said would amount to actual discrimination rather than just offensive speech. Then, then I would be fine with them having to um, recalibrate their arguments on that basis. Um, you know, I, I think if if the world that we end up living in is a world in which there, you know, we we encounter fewer swastikas and fewer emblems of group sub- uh, uh, subordination and fewer outright arguments for biological superiority and so on, um, then that is a more equal world. Um, I think that we fall into sometimes a trap of thinking that the law can only follow public opinion and not lead it. And I actually believe getting a law on the books can be educational. I think in many ways the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was was one of those kinds of laws. Um, It led the the development of a social ethic that made um, at least outright public displays of discrimination less possible. And uh, I'm simply advocating that we do something similar with the idea of free speech in this country, as it would be filtered through the lens of the 14th Amendment.
0: Many thanks for that. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this absolutely fascinating discussion. In a September 2017 survey, uh, a senior fellow at Brookings polled 1,500 students and found that only 39 percent... Uh, believe that hate speech is constitutionally protected, 44% believe it is not protected, and 16% said they don't know. Keith, what would you say to those students about why you believe the First Amendment should protect the expression of hate speech?
1: Uh, Well, of course, uh, stacking the deck a little bit to call it hate speech even, uh, given the the slipperiness of the concept. But... um, but I think fundamentally that that um, uh, we want to protect um, speech that often gets categorized that way, um, um, in part because we ought to be very cautious about um, how we empower people to start um, suppressing speech. Um, and we should be concerned about um, how do we get to a world um, in which we have fewer swastikas um, and less discrimination. Um, I, I think that's um, certainly among my goals um, as well um, and, and I think uh, where um, I'm likely to um, depart from Shannon is, is on um, what the best method is for uh, trying to get to that um, better world. And I think ultimately um, holding ideas up to critical scrutiny, um, examining them in the light, um, will ultimately be most productive uh, in allowing us um, to identify um, and dismiss um, ideas that are bad people. Um, uh, and and dangerous and false, um, rather than trying to suppress them um, uh, and exclude them, um, which I think ultimately will allow them instead to um, fester. Um, And and so uh, we'd be better off and and be better served by a regime uh, in which we're capable of hearing what uh, people like Ann Coulter and others uh, have to say um, and then um, exposing them um, as to why we think they're mistaken. Uh, rather than uh, trying to uh, exclude and suppress
0: them. Many thanks for that. Shannon, last word to you. Uh, What would you say to those students about why you believe the First Amendment should be construed to allow the restriction of hate speech?
2: Um, Well, you know, I I think I would say that we have a commitment in this country to equality that, in my view, is, in fact, central to our constitutional system. and I think... um, the context of the Fourteenth Amendment, the war that led to it, etc., resettled the ground on which the First Amendment and preceding constitutional provisions sits. And uh, for that reason, I think that we are being untrue to our constitutional mission if we refuse to take account of the commitment to equality, the right to equality embodied in the Fourteenth Amendment when we analyze the question of free speech. Um, But I would be careful to say that a conceptualization of 14th Amendment freedom of speech that matters is careful to distinguish between that which merely produces hurt feelings and that which in itself effectuates subordination. And we'd have to be very careful about how we... Put that into law, so that it isn't abused um, beyond that, I would just say that I'm always fascinated by these kinds of surveys because if you know if if such a large majority of people surveyed think that hate speech is unprotected, i'd love to know what exactly it is they think it is um particularly in the country where we are you know, constantly bombarded with images of Nazis and white supremacists and the hooded Klan and Confederate flags and so on down the line, what on earth must it actually be for these people to consider hate speech and for it to be unprotected? Otherwise, there are lots of people out there just flagrantly breaking the law. Um, So it would be, you know, really interesting to me to be able to have a conversation more nationally about what it is people think hate speech is. Um, Because right now, I really do think um, either they think it is something so um, gruesome and beyond the pale as to be almost never encountered, or on the opposite pole, they think it's just anything that hurts anybody's feelings. And um, of course, I don't think either of those conceptualizations adequately captures what at least I would be talking about in the legal conceptualization of uh, of that idea.
0: Thank you so much, Shannon Gilreath and Keith Whittington, for a truly engaged, nuanced, and illuminating discussion of one of the most hotly contested and important constitutional debates of our time. We the People listeners, the National Constitution Center is going to be debating this question throughout the year and the years ahead. We have a series of traveling debates across the country, co-sponsored by the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society. The first is in Chicago on November 8th. And I want you to Tune into those and educate yourself about this important question. Read Keith Whittington's book, uh, When It Comes Out, Why Free Speech is Central to the Mission of a University. Read Shannon Gilreath's article about anti-identity speech and dig in hard to this because this is a live, meaningful, current constitutional debate. And you, as informed citizens, will determine the contours of that debate. Shannon, Keith, thank you so much for joining Thank you.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's so important to be having this kind of conversation, especially now. Thank you.
0: Today's show was engineered by David Stotz and produced by Ogana, Etze, and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Continue today's conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at Constitution CTR. Sign up to receive Constitution Weekly, our email roundup of constitutional news and debate at bit.ly forward slash constitution weekly. It's the best way of keeping in touch with all the great content the Constitution Center produces. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast live at America's Town Hall on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. That live at America's Town Hall stream is really helpful because that's all the great programs that we're producing in Philly and across the country that I mentioned. And you want to learn from those as well. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster of podcasts at panoply.fm. Please be sure to rate We the People on iTunes and other platforms. It helps other people know what we do and learn from us like you. And finally, despite that inspiring congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support. We rely on the generosity, enthusiasm, engagement, And passion for lifelong learning of you, We the People listeners. I'm so grateful when you write to me and tell me that you like the podcast or you don't like it or you are quibbling with particular points. That means you're engaged and you're doing the process of constitutional lifelong learning that is your duty as citizens. And I'm so glad to you and grateful for your accepting that high responsibility. So please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.